Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Help is a riveting story of a struggling young woman, Sarah, played by Jody Comer, who is smart but has never fit in, not in education and not in work. Her family told her she'd never amount to anything, but she unexpectedly finds her calling as a caregiver at Bright Sky Homes. Sarah has a special talent for connecting with residents, including one in particular, a 47-year-old by the name of Tony, played by Stephen Graham, Tony's young onset Alzheimer's has left him living out his days in care as his mind slowly deteriorates. The film is called Help. We're joined today by the director, Mark Munden. Mark, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. First of all, this is just a a wonderful film on so many different levels. Uh, the, uh, The writing is superb. The characters are well-drawn. There's so much about this film that I was just completely drawn to and and it really impacted me. Where did this project begin for you? Well, I have a relationship with Jack Thorne. I've, I've, I've made a couple of pieces with him before. Uh, he's a magnificent writer and um, we did a, an adaptation of, of the book, The Secret Garden, a couple of years ago, which was a movie actually. And uh, we also did a, a series called National Treasure, which played on Hulu in America a few years ago. So I have a relationship with him anyway. Some time ago, he was approached by Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham. Stephen, you, you may remember, he's done quite a lot of work with Scorsese. He was in The Irishman. He, he, you know, he was in Gangs of New York. He's done some really interesting work. By the way, just to interrupt you, sorry, he was fantastic in Boiling Point. Yes, he's great in Boiling Point as well. Yeah, and he was just a big instigator of that film as well. And and with this, I think he came up to Jack at an awards ceremony because Jack was involved with a Shane Meadows project called The Virtues, which he was in. Said to Jack, I want you to write something for me and Jodie Comer because when Jodie first started out as an actor, uh, she was mentored by Stephen. They've never worked together since, but um, uh, Stephen, you know, asked Jack to write something. And anyone that knows Stephen Graham knows that you don't say no to Stephen Graham. So, so he he went off and started writing, and then the pandemic hit. He found his film, I think, in the pandemic. I mean, you know, as this film states, 40% of the deaths in the first few months of uh, the lockdown in the UK in 2020 uh, were in care homes. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. He wanted to write something about care homes because his mum worked in one and he used to spend time there after school and Christmas there and things. And I got involved because my mother was in a care home for 10 years before with Alzheimer's. You know, I met a lot of extraordinary people there, uh, both carers and residents during that time, over that 10 years. I really felt that I wanted to give something back, you know, to honour that in some sort of way. And that's what Jack wanted to do as well. The way that it developed was he started writing and he gave it to me in, in installments. You know, he, he, you know, he gave me the first few pages 
And then, he's, you know, a couple of weeks later, he'd send me another few pages. So it was really a little bit like getting a sort of a Dickens novel in, you know, published each month in the magazine that they were published in, you know. So it was a similar sort of thing. And um, and, and then finally the piece came together and Channel 4 had commissioned it. It was made for Channel 4 very cheaply, very fast. You know, it was made, shot in five weeks, cut in six weeks. And the, the thing that took a little bit of time was that once he'd written this piece, we, we spent a lot of time with young onset Alzheimer's groups, which Stephen became a part of uh, one of those groups. And we also spent a lot of time hearing carers' stories from that first wave at that first lockdown period. And those stories were sort of plugged into the script, um, you know, from, from, from those interviews that we did with those people. So there were that 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 took a little bit more time, but it was pretty it was pretty fast from start to finish. One of the things that my takeaway from help is that, which I find so often to be the case in narrative films and in documentary films, is that the smaller story that's being told, the very personal story, is something that illuminates something much bigger than itself, and that's that's the key to it all great storytelling, but in particular in cinema, I find it to really be uh, particularly difficult to do well. And this film does that very well. We see, we see Sarah's story and we also, and along the way, we see a healthcare system overloaded, unprepared in many ways. And we also see a kind of a social prioritizing as well. There's there are a lot of things that go beyond a very personal story of a woman struggling to find herself, struggles with her family, struggles just trying to find a place in, in the world for herself. And along the way, she becomes th- this remarkable character, remarkable person. But uh, but we see priorities. We see things about our, that go beyond the facility. This makes this film for me just resonate so deeply. Well, yeah, I'm glad you thought that. You know, just to give you a little bit of history of what was going on in the UK at the time, there had been a lot of money which had been withheld from the national health system over the last few years of the Tory government. When the pandemic came, they were very, very worried about hospitals being overloaded, you know, casualty wards being overloaded. They put as much energy as possible into trying to clear these wards, you know, the the hospital wards and things. And one of the things that happened was that a lot of elderly people that were in hospital wards who really didn't need to be in sort of critical care or have hospital care, but were in forms of geriatric care, were, were disgorged out into the community, into care homes. And, you know, care homes took them in and they were actually mostly sent out without being tested first. There was no requirement for testing. And they mostly went into care homes where they were looked after if they didn't have families and things. A lot of people brought COVID with them into those care homes. But the the main thing when you talk about priorities is that the the National Health Service was prioritised. Uh, you, you know, it's important to have a, a strong health service in those circumstances. But what was deprioritized was the care home system. 
the whole sort of uh, care sector really felt, I think, during that time, betrayed by the government because there was no help for it in any way. And and, and that's what resulted in the, the, these huge number of deaths during that time, during that first time. And we had that here in the United States. We know, uh, particularly in the state of New York, where an awful lot of people were pushed into that same place or people in those facilities were not given the kind of health care that they should have been. And here in America, we have been systematically dismantling our public health system for quite some time, going back, I think, to the 80s, really. And we are now seeing we're bearing the brunt of all of that neglect, all of the, the loss of hospitals in rural parts of the country, the loss. There's so much that's been dismantled or allowed to wither in, in our country, in the United States. And again, we're having this conversation about something about the healthcare system when this is a very personal story told from a very personal perspective, but it's, it is in, it's in the DNA of this, of this script. And I didn't want to, didn't, I wanted to at least uh, give it its due in our conversation because there's just so much to be gleaned really, truly from, from all of this uh, for us to, to think about. The heart and soul of the film is Sarah and, and obviously Tony, but Sarah is just what a remarkable performance, uh, what a remarkable development of a character on the part of Jodie Comer in this role. She's amazing in the film. Uh, and I, I know, I, I'm sure you'll probably echo what I just said in some way, but there is a particular, I'll say 15 to 20 minute sequence in the middle of the film that's as good as anything you'll see in terms of performance. Tell me a little bit about what you what your conversations were about this this character. I mean, the interesting thing about Jodie Comer is that she, she, you know, most people know her from Killing Eve, in which she plays like a very, very different character. She plays this assassin, but she's actually from Liverpool. And when I was uh, talking about, you know, Stephen and and Jodie asking Jack to do this film for them, you know, it's because they both came from the same part of Liverpool in this, you know, and it's a small town, Liverpool, you know. So I think that one of the surprising things about Jodie in this film is you you hear a real accent, you know, that is her, you know, and there's a lot of both Stephen and Jodie in those characters as well, you know, and one of the reasons that I think that it works so well is that there's so much of them in those characters and they loved working together you know so that a lot of the character stuff is riffing off each other you know that was a joy to see because there was a lot of uh improvisational things that came out of that and definitely the humor that they they, they developed a sort of uh, a younger sister older brother relationship with each other which was not really in the script it but it just came out of you know of the rehearsal process i always rehearse in a rehearsal room so there's a lot of stuff that came out of that rehearsal process which was um improvised and things including the the you know the gag at the end which i'm i'm not sure many people in america might get but it was about uh, liverpool and everton that are the rival football clubs in, in liverpool and uh, it turns out that she's actually an everton supporter you know despite pretending to be a liverpool supporter the way through and that was a, that's a, that's a gag that came out of rehearsals in addition to you mentioned uh, Stephen Graham as well as Jody Comer, Ian Hart is wonderful in the film as the, the the guy who runs the facility, and all of these characters, all of the actors in this film are able to kind of shift gears in in a way that fits the moment 
their their ability to kind of rise to the moment is really remarkable. Um, and I, I mean, I'm thinking of Ian at the beginning. He's he, he's interviewing Sarah for the job, and with this sort of that, that dynamic that kind of gets established early on. There's an antagonism that kind of runs under their uh, runs under their particular relationship at, at work and such. And and then the people within the facility, you're able to establish three or four of these people that we really get to love, you know, and appreciate and understand where they're coming from. I don't have a great question to ask. I just acknowledge these particular uh, performances in here. And there's a lot of uh, care workers in the film as well. I mean, a lot of the acts care workers as well, like Alicia Ao, who plays June, is 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 a care worker, and you know, so there's a a lot of that went into that. I mean, uh, you know, just to give it an overall, you know, a sense of uh, you know what the, the the film was intending to be. I mean, in in the sort of 70s and 80s in Britain, there was a, a strand called uh, Play for Today, and it, they were they were plays which were written which had social um, issues at their heart, but they were written in the social realist style, and some of them actually weren't really social realists. They were actually, you know, they were quite surreal as well. And I wanted to make something which was like that, which which would make people talk about the issues the following day but come at those issues from a very very personal perspective so you know basically what they're seeing is some sort of platonic love story which goes through the film Um, uh, but they're learning about the issue you know a a very hot political topic of the time you know you know that was the the framing of the piece you know what we hope to achieve something which was immediate and would sort of ignite debate in some sort of way but on top of that you talked about the middle section of the film and the middle section of the film is is another thing entirely which is a sort of genre piece really it's a it's a 28 minute sequence where I suppose you're you're talking about her saving um, Kenny's life, yeah. I think one of the fears about making a film like that so close to the real events happening is that on the one hand, you know, obviously you want to get it right, but on the other hand, you don't really want to trigger the sort of horrors that people went through at the time. You know, it's and I think there's a big responsibility on the filmmaker to absolutely get it right. But when Jack first sent me the script, so that, you know, for, for anyone that hasn't seen the film, COVID enters the, the care home and there's a man who's sort of quite overweight who contracts COVID and uh, is not able to breathe. One uh, night when J- Jodie Comer's character, Sarah, is in the home, she is left on her own there because one of the fellow carers is not able to come in. And she has to try and save this man's life because he's not able to breathe. And so it sort of really follows her over the course of that night, uh, trying to get help for him uh, by dialing the local doctor, not getting them, dialing the National Health Service advice line. And then when she has no success with that she dials 999 which is the equivalent of your 911 and then not not having any success with that she gets tony to help her to turn this man over so it's sort of quite a long sequence it's a continual uh shot and it's sort of an immersive piece of cinema and 
And when I first read it, and it wasn't written like that, it was written as lots of disparate scenes and things. I thought it was really a bit like a home invasion movie. It was about a woman alone in a home uh, with this silent, invisible invader that she couldn't repel. She couldn't also get any help from the outside. It felt like there was something to be got from the sort of horror genre there, I suppose, you know. And that's what the piece is. It's really about the sort of true horror, the true dread that those workers experienced over that time, you know. And I tried to picture a point where on the one hand it was real, but on the other hand you could feel the horror mounting as she sort of uh, tried to save this man's life and then gets against all her better judgment uh, brings uh, Tony suffering from young onset Alzheimer's in to help her prone him, turn him on his stomach so he can breathe, you know, and it just sort of mounts up all the while while she's trying to, uh, while she's got uh, 911 on um, answer phone, you know, with a message going round and round and round. So it was a sort of way of bringing in genre to something which was essentially social realist, but still trying to meld it with social realism, you know. That's perfect because this is where I want to talk about your cinematographer, Mark Wolf, because, yeah, it has all the markings of of a horror movie or, as you said, home invasion film. It reframes it in a way that is true to an actual event of this kind in a way that we see it and with the way we experience it. So that to me, the brilliance of it is it's something that we're familiar with. If we watch movies that sort of motif play out, but it's in the context of something that is by this time we're invested in emotionally and psychologically. And so therefore it, that horror resonates even more so on, on, on other levels. I mean, you can be afraid of, a Freddy Krueger movie and be terrified by what you're seeing, but not in this way, not in this way. This felt very, very different. And it's, it's the writing, it's the performance. It is Mark Wolf's work here. It is, it's all of those things. And it's just, it's this dreadful ballet of sorts watching her as she tries to navigate from room to room and trying to get everything coordinated without, and in some ways, you know, help's not coming. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's the whole film is brilliant, but this is certainly, certainly that and more. And the shocking um, stinging the tail of that when you talk of uh, priorities is that the ambulance service, the emergency services tended not to prioritize elderly people in care home that had COVID because they had little success with intubating elderly people in yeah. hospital and getting the success of them getting them to breathe again so they tended to leave them and there's no official figures about this but so i can't really say for certain that this was the case but it felt that um you know from our anecdotal evidence from all the carers that we spoke to they all had the same story about being passed over by uh, emergency services you know and I don't know whether that was the algorithm that was used or whether it was people or whether it was word of mouth or whether it was government policy but that absolutely happened and, and and that obviously is what happens in the film as well yeah the film is called help and we're speaking with the director Mark Munden and 
you're right. I don't know if there's something primal about survival instinct. To me, it's a confluence of a lot of things, algorithms, priorities, money, resources, and something about our being in an environment like that, being in that situation where we as a species make some calculations. I don't know if this is the right way to, to put it, but about who's going to make it and who's not. There's so many things at work. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how many levels this story operates on and as well in, and the filmmaking makes it, it brings all of this into focus, but I, it's all of those things. It's ageism. It's, I don't know, you throw, you can throw in a whole lot of different kind of things that are going on and this is what you get. I think one of the things that the the other thing that we haven't mentioned, which I think was important to uh, Jack and I, was that the portrayal of what it takes to be a carer. Yeah. Um, Sarah is someone that has very few qualifications. She's a bit chippy. She's never really settled down into a career. What she finds is that actually she's really good at this job, and it's the first job that she's ever discovered that she's good at. What, what what's interesting about that is that this this is the sort of a lot of carers have no qualifications whatsoever. Because of that, they're not remunerated in the way that people like doctors and nurses and all those people that have got lots of qualifications have. You can work in a care home in the UK, um, not a nursing home, but a care home with very few qualifications. Yet, the unofficial qualifications that you have, those of love and patience and observation and, you know, all those things that make great caring, you, you may have those, but they're, they're not really recognised as something which needs to be remunerated or can be sort of quantified in any way. And, and as a result of that, carers get paid very, very little money. And yet it is one of the most difficult jobs that you can imagine. You know, one of the things that we wanted to do was to try and put that on the screen, that sort of uh, that endeavour and that dedication to duty. And uh, obviously there are a lot of carers with all sorts of qualifications, but actually there are a lot that, that don't, you know, and there needs to be a system for proper remuneration of these people, you know, who are, are putting their hearts and souls into caring for people that are not their family, but giving them the same respect and love and as their family would. You know, it's an incredible job to do. Well, and I thought about this, you know, what makes Sarah qualified? What, why is she good at this? That crossed my mind. And I, I thought one of the things that is built into the character is that she comes from a, an emotionally tumultuous family situation, particularly with her father. And it's been my experience in life that people who are able to navigate those kinds of dysfunctional and often erratic relationships develop, either they don't develop an understanding of the human condition in a way that they either can nav- they can either work with it or they don't those who are able to tend to be empathetic they tend to have seen the spectrum of human cruelty and kindness or whatever some version of that i find that i mean and i spent some time in these places that we we're, we're talking about and i i could usually tell who was going to be good and who wasn't just because of what you're describing they're, they have this level of empathy, understanding patience, 
they put themselves in the place of the person who they're caring for. And that's what Sarah Jody Comer does so well in this film is she puts herself right in the middle of their lives in a way that is she's still able to do her job effectively and efficiently. But at the same time, when called upon, she's able to to pull this into this into the situation. Yeah. Well, I think she had a very she spent a lot of time with carers. She had a very good understanding of what it takes to do that job. I think she must come from a very loving home. She is absolutely grounded, you know, and really took a lot of time spending time with the carers, you know, and understanding what it took to do such a thing, you know. But I think innately she just understood what it took to do that. I want to let people know that they can see help through Amazon. It's on Acorn TV. That's where I watch the film. Are there other platforms or is that the best place for people to watch here? Yeah, that is the best place to watch it. Yeah, Acorn TV. Acorn TV. And there's a seven-day free trial. And then there's a lot of wonderful films as well as a lot of serial TV kind of programming on there as well. So you also um, have some film screening on movie.com where some of your previous work is, is available as well. So um, Hulu as well. I mean, national treasure is a good one for viewers to watch because it's a similar sort of uh, it's a similar partnership, me and, um, and Jack Thorne, but it's a very, very different subject. And it's almost like a sort of a paranoid thriller, but it's about a man, a, a veteran comedian who, who is arrested for a, a, a historic sex crime. Uh, and it has Julie Walters and uh, Robbie Coltrane in that. And oh, wow. Andrea Weisborough, who, who, who's in a lot of independent American movies. Great cast. Well, I want to, again, congratulate you on Help. It is a, a wonderful film. I don't mind mentioning that it's uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 100%. It's the the acclaim the has been wide uh, for the film for all the reasons we've been talking about. And the performances of Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer are just incredible. And she's amazing. Mark London, thank you so very much for your time. And I know it's been a long day for you, and I really appreciate the time you're spending with us. To, and uh, all the best. I hope whatever you do next, well, you'll find some time to come back and join us again. Thank I you. Love you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 